Hey, if you do have a copy of God's Word, we are in 1 Samuel uh, this morning. Our main text is going to be chapters 21 through 26. We're actually going to start, though, in chapter 18. So 1 Samuel chapter 18 this morning. Uh, if you are new or maybe visiting with us this morning, Kevin is the, the college pastor in this summer. Uh, we are doing an overview of 1 and 2 Samuel, also known as the Chronicles of Samuel. And uh, we're taking big chunks of passages uh, each week and doing more like a flyover, more like a, I get the analogy a few weeks ago, it's more like driving down the interstate, right? You see a, a brief clip of something in that city uh, based off the interstate, right? But then you just keep going. You're covering a lot of ground uh, in a little bit of time versus walking around downtown, looking at brick and brick and store and store, kind of like what Pastor Brian is doing with the Gospel of John. So this is a little bit different. Uh, we may miss a few things in these, uh, in these chapters that you're like, oh man, I really like that section about whatever, um, and that's fine. But if you want to stay up to speed, the college ministry does have a podcast, so I'd encourage all of you guys, if you miss a week, go back and listen. I, there's so much content, I actually go back and re-listen again, and I always pick up something that I missed the first time. So this morning we're going to be in uh, 1 Samuel, starting in chapter 18, because 18, 19, and 20 kind of give us a, a background and a setup uh, to what we're going to be talking about today. Last week, if you weren't here, uh, Kevin kind of covered Saul. Uh, Saul and, and David are the two main characters in this section of the narrative, uh, this section of the historical accounts of us for the nation of Israel. Uh, Saul was established as the king. He started a relationship with David because David defeated Goliath. And so many people have heard about the David and Goliath uh, encounter in history, but basically Goliath was this huge, nasty, intimidating Philistine. And uh, King Saul said, if anybody can kill him, uh, I will make him a part of the royal family. I will give him my daughter, Michael's uh, hand in marriage. I will give him a plot of land. He can be folded in and become part of the royal family. So David defeats him. He now becomes Saul's uh, son-in-law, right? So here's David goes from this uh, forgotten youngest child, uh, youngest brother, uh, who kept the sheep and everything. Now, in, in the words of Kevin, uh, he had boss moves, though, because he had also killed a bear and a lion, so he wasn't some puny little guy. Uh, and so David is now folded into the royal family, but it starts with uh, in, having an issue in the family. And, and I want to do a little side note and say that uh, there's so many things in life that can complicate relationships, uh, especially within friendships and within families. Uh, in this case, it's jealousy. Jealousy is where it all starts. Look at 1 Samuel 18, verse 6. David has now killed Goliath. The Israelites have now won this battle with the Philistines. And in verse 6, it says, When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, that's talking about Goliath, the women came out from the towns of Israel to meet King Saul, with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with tambourines, with lyres. They were dancing and they were singing. Just You've probably seen, uh, you know, Super Bowl or championship parades in a city, right, where everybody in the city comes out and floods the streets, and everybody parades down the streets with the championship. It was like that in battle. They're going nuts. They're going crazy. Everybody's celebrating. Everybody's dancing. And this is what they were singing. Saul has slain his thousands. 
Well, that's pretty good, you know, especially because one of the things that we learned is that we don't see anywhere recorded in Scripture that up to this point that Saul has actually put his hand on the sword <laughs> and gone to battle, right? He was the one who that should have led them in battle against Goliath, uh, but he didn't. So anyway, Saul has metaphorically slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Well, let's not get carried away. Saul was very angry. And this refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with me, only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. From that time on, Saul actively pursued ways to get rid of David. Now, you think, you have some awkward family dinners? <laughs> Can you imagine this one, right? I've never sat at a family dinner where my father-in-law's across the table plotting going, how can I kill this little punk? Right, you know, at least not that I know of. Maybe he has, and I just don't know about it yet. But, uh, but the thing is, you talk about some awkward family dinners. I mean, from this point on, there was strife between Saul and David because of what? Because of jealousy. Because of jealousy. Now, you may not have already at this point, but at some point in time in your life, uh, you're going to encounter being on the receiving end of some really ungodly actions, right? Or some really ungodly people who, who have it in for you for whatever reason. It may be a response in a situation. It may be somebody who just doesn't like you. You're going to be on the receiving end of that. It could be a boss. It could be a coworker. It could be a family member. It could be a situation like in society uh, it could be a group of people. And so today, what we want to look at, looking at this issue that David and Saul have together, is we want to look at how should we respond? How should we respond? And so today, everything that we, we call through is going to be under the blanket or under the umbrella of this thought. Our decisions to respond in godly ways to those who act in ungodly ways against us, right? We, I want us all to consider... Looking at this scenario with Saul and David, and also David, another guy named Nabal, is what are our decisions to respond in godly ways to people who act in ungodly ways uh, against us? So <clears throat> here's the backstory. We see now this jealousy is here, right? King Saul wants to get rid of King David because he's, or get rid of David because he's jealous. He's not king yet. And look at, look at verse 19, uh, verse 8. Once more, war broke out, and David went out and fought the Philistines, and he struck them with such force that they fled before him. What we're starting to see is that David has a knack for battle. He actually ends up later, a little, uh, little precursor here, he actually ends up becoming the greatest military king that is, you know, in all of Israel's history when he actually takes over the throne. Apparently, he has a knack for it. He has a special talent for it, and he, and he, stri he leads this win against the Philistines, Look at verse 9, but an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul, and he was sitting at his house with a spear in his hand, right? So here's Saul. He's, he's, he's disturbed. He has unchecked, unguarded jealousy and hatred and resentment towards David. He's sitting there at the palace. He's got a spear in his hand. I guess that was like his little binky, like his little blanket, you know. We're going to see he, every story in here, David... <laughs> I mean, Saul has his spear, okay? There's something about his spear. And uh, it came on him, and while David was playing the lyre, verse 10, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. Now, you got to understand, like, that's a pretty forceful throw, 
Okay, if, if you've ever thrown like ninja stars or knife throwing or the little axe throwing stuff, it takes a little bit of velocity to penetrate a wall, okay? So, you know, don't think that Saul was like, oh, David, you're so crazy, pook. You know, no, we're not talking about like a little poke, okay? I mean, dude was trying to kill his son-in-law while dude's just playing the, you know, playing the mandolin, playing the lyre. Uh, and it says, but David eluded him and Saul drove the spear into the wall. And that night, David made good his escape. So basically what happens is all this jealousy, all this rage just comes over Saul. He hits a breaking point. He hurls his spear to kill David. He misses him. David goes to his wife, right, Saul's daughter. She lets him out the window. She helps him escape. Um, and he goes to where Samuel, the priest, is. He, and um, <clears throat> let's see. He goes to where Samuel, the priest, is staying. He, Samuel knows David. Samuel's now already anointed David to be the next king of Israel. He tells him what Saul did, and uh, Saul finds out that David went to where Samuel was. He pursues and goes after David there. David comes back to Jonathan, Saul's son. If you can keep up with all this, it's, it's, it's quite like a, uh, oh, come on, man, my, my mind just left me. The crazy dude that had all the crazy people on Jerry Springer. Yeah, it's like a Jerry Springer episode right here, okay? So David goes to Samuel. Saul finds out David's there. David comes back to Jonathan who was Saul's son. You know, they were BFFs, right? They kind of had a half a tattoo on the forearm so that when they shook hands like this, it said brotherhood across or something, right? And so, so David and Jonathan were like BFFs. He comes back to Jonathan, and he's like, dude, your, your dad's crazy, okay? Now, if, here's how you know Saul is in the wrong. Both his daughter and his son realize that he's acting foolishly, and they're helping David, right? So Jonathan says, I tell you what, David, you go outside of town, you go hide, and what I'll do is I'll go check and see just how serious is it, and then I'll come and I'll let you know. So look in chapter 20, verse 32. This is Jonathan talking to his dad, trying to figure out, hey, what really is going on with you and David? Like, why has David gotten you to this point that you're willing to murder him uh, to get rid of him? Look at verse 32. Jonathan says, why should he be put to death? Like, what has he done? And, and I want you to hang on to that because that question is going to continue to be asked of Saul. Like, like what, what really has David done that justifies being murdered? So Jonathan asked his dad of that. Verse 33, but Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. All right, now look, at some point in time, somebody's got to intervene and, and separate this brother from his spear, man. Maybe dude just doesn't need his spear when he's inside and he's around family, right? You know, let's, let's take the... Let's take the knife away from the child. So Saul hurled a spear to kill him, his own son, because all he was doing was inquiring about David. This is how much Saul hated David. Then Jonathan knew his father intended to kill David. Jonathan reports to David, to David bro, it's, it's pretty serious. So they hug, they part ways. Jonathan comes back home, and now David becomes a refugee. And that's where we pick up today in chapter 21. It's gotten really, really bad. It's gotten really, really bad. So in chapter 21, what we see is that David becomes a refugee. For the next three chapters, they do different segments. I'm just going to give some brief overviews of how all this is working, right? So David is victorious in battle. Saul gets jealous. Saul wants to kill him. He tries to kill his son because he's so upset with David. He's willing to kill his own son because they're friends. David now realizes, I've got to be a refugee. I've got, I've got to go into hiding. So he goes up to a border town, a border town of Nob, and there he goes to the temple. 
uh, and there was a priest there, Amalek, right? So he, he rolls in by himself to Amalek, goes to visit the priest, and, and he knows who he is. I mean, how would you not, right? David's part of the royal family. Everybody in the country knows who he is. He's also famous for killing Goliath, right? That story is, is very epic in our day. It's also very epic in that day. So he goes into Amalek, and he says, hey, man, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on a mission. I'm kind of hungry. Do you have any food? And Amalek is curious. He's like, dude, like you're part of the royal family. Like, why are you traveling alone? Why are you traveling without supplies? I mean, it's very odd, right? He wouldn't have gone without his security detail. The Bible actually tells us David was the, the head of all the bodyguards. And so he says, oh, well, you know, I, I'm on a secret mission. I had to leave in a hurry. I didn't have a chance to bring my stuff. Do you have any food? And Amalek's like, sure. So he brings him in. He gives him some food. And, uh, and David goes, I'll tell you what. Also, I kind of need a sword. Any chance you got something like that, you know, laying around? We got a few out here in the lobby. I, I don't know if I'd recommend using them, though. They're kind of plastic. But, but anyway, so he, he says, hey, do you have any swords? And Amalek's like, well, we, we only have one. It's kind of wrapped up, and it's it, hidden in the janitor's closet. David's like, okay. Pulls it out. It's Goliath's sword. Sweet, right? David's like, recognize that? I've kind of wielded that once before, actually. I might have used that to separate dude's head from his body. So, yeah, that'll, that'll work. So David comes. You can read about that in chapter 17, by the way. So David takes Goliath's sword. There is a lot of hair up here, by the way. That is really odd. I looked down. I was like, <laughs> all right, anyway, so, so David's now got Goliath's sword, okay? And so he's like, he's on this border town of Nob. And so he decides, well, maybe I can go hide over in uh, where the Philistines are and maybe take refuge over there. So he goes to Gath. Now, if you guys have, have been here, you know anything about Gath? Gath is a prominent uh, Philistine city right there near the border uh, with, it, with Israel. And it's also the hometown for one of the most famous Philistines ever in the name of Goliath. So here's David, right, walking into Goliath's hometown with Goliath's sword that he used to separate his head from his body. And it's like, yo, what up, peeps? No, he didn't say that. But he, he goes in, and he's kind of trying to hide and trying to take a little bit of refuge. And, and they find David, and they bring him to the king, and they recognize who he is. You know, they're like, oh, we, we know who this is. This is David, right? So David, in fear of his life, pretends to be insane, right? He starts going crazy. He starts, you know, it says he starts, like, drooling at the mouth and everything. This is my favorite part. And the king's like, we don't need him here. We have, we have enough we don't need another crazy man in our area. And I'm like, how many crazy people you got up in there to be like, we don't need another one, right? And so anyway, so, so David's like, fine. So now, border town didn't work. A town in, it, with the Philistines didn't work. So now he goes out, and he's in the hill country in Judah uh, that where, he's, where he decides to just kind of hide out in, in the woods, so to speak, right? He, he goes to where all the Israelite rednecks are, and that's where he goes to, to hang out, Right? Now, what we don't know is, we don't know how this conspired, but while he was there hiding out in the hill country, his family and 400 men came to see David, and they were supporters of him, and to hang out with him. We don't exactly know how they got word of where he was or what he was doing, but his family shows up, and, uh, and David decides, okay, I need, to, I need to put my parents somewhere. I, I mean, you know, it's, we see that today in a lot of cultures, Right? If Saul's going to attack David, one of the best ways to go after him is to go after his family. So Saul's like, man, I need to, I need to put my parents somewhere safe. So he takes them to Moab. Now, he has a heritage there in Moab because his great-grandmother's Ruth. You may have heard of her, right? She was a Moabite woman. So his parents had a heritage there. So he stashes his parents in Moab, and now he 
and these 400 men go and hide in the forest of Hereth. Now, these 400 men become what the Bible calls David's mighty men. And if you, ever, if you want to read about it, it's fascinating. These men are now part of David's ride or die. They're going to stay with him through the long haul. They have some pretty epic battles that you can read about in the, in the uh, Samuels and in First Chronicles. And these guys do some pretty crazy stuff. But these now are David's mighty men. Well, he can't hang out, you know, kind of in, out in the open. It's kind of like going to a restaurant and you have a party of two versus having a party of 200, right? It's, it's a little bit easier to hide when you're a party of one. Now he's a party of 400. So he's got to go somewhere a little different. So he goes to the forest of Hareth. And that's where we kind of pick up where David is hanging out with his, um, with his uh, mighty men. Let's see, right here in chapter 23. And what happens is David, find, I mean, Saul finds out that the priest if you're following all this, that the priest in Nob helped out David, and he was furious, right? Because in his mind, this guy has now committed treason. He's now aided and abetted, you know, enemy of the state number one in David. So Saul loads up his men. He goes over there uh, to Amalek. Let's see if we can find it here. Yep. Um, in, sorry, I was a chapter off, chapter 22. There's a lot going on in here. Chapter 22, so they, uh, Saul goes to Amalek. He pulls out Amalek and all the other priests, and he basically says, bring them to me. I need to ask what's going on. And so he basically asks Amalek. He's like, why did you help David? I mean, the answer is like, why would he not help David? Verse 14, chapter 22, verse 14. Amalek answered the king, who of all your servants is as loyal as David? The king's son-in-law captain of your bodyguard, and highly respected in your household, right? So Amalek, the priest, and Nob, who helped David, Saul's like, why did you do that? He's like, why wouldn't I do that? Let me look at what he says about David. Like, and he's probably sitting there trying to figure out, like, why are, why are you pursuing this guy? Like, this guy is probably the most important guy that you have on your team. Why are you trying to get rid of him? Saul is so blinded by rage and anger and jealousy. Look at what he does in verse 17, chapter 22. Then the king, talking about Saul, ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priest of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. I mean, we've gone from trying to kill David to trying to kill his son to now slaughtering and murdering a whole group of priests of the Lord. Guys, this, this is kind of the pinnacle of unchecked, unguarded jealousy and hatred. Now, most of us probably will not let it get to this level, okay? But it is a warning to all of us that when Satan tries to plant a seed of like jealousy or hatred or rage, if we don't cultivate that out of the garden of our heart, it can take some really deep root and it can manifest and grow into some things that, that cause us to respond in ways that we may not have responded otherwise. It's very, very dangerous to leave those seeds in the garden of our heart and let them manifest themselves and grow roots. It can lead us to some really, really dark places. So Saul tells his men, I need you to murder all these priests. <laughs> all of them. Now, look in, uh, right there at the end of verse 17. But the king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priest of the Lord. They realize, they're like, Saul, you, I'm, I can't go there. 
I can't go there, which is also a great testimony. You and I are going to find ourselves in places where we're asked to do something that we know is just point blank wrong. (laughs) We need to have the backbone to say no. And, And these guys said no. Saul's crazy at this point. Saul could have easily just slayed all of them. They're like, we don't care. We can't do that. I'm sorry. I just I can't do that. So Doag the Edomite <laughs> says, I got you, boo. And he takes out his sword. And look at what it says. He says, that day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. And he also put the sword, Nob, the town of the priest, with its men, its women, its children, its infants, its cattle, its donkey, and its sheep. Doag says, I got you, man. He slaughters the whole town, just kills them all. What does Saul do? Goes about his business. I mean, this is, this is insane. This is insane. This is what unguarded, unrestrained hatred and jealousy can do to a person. So in the midst of all this, one of Amalek's sons escapes the slaughter. He flees to where David is. He tells David all that Saul has just done. And David grafts him in. And now Amalek's son is a part of David's group, which is a great testimony that's going to carry over. Hang on to that because you're going to see that action of David's heart later on in his life. He does it again to another family member. It's pretty, pretty cool. One of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. Now, we're going to take a pause right here. If you remember back a couple of chapters ago when Kevin was teaching about the people wanting a king, Samuel was their priest. They go to Samuel and they beg him. They're like, dude, we want a king. And God tells the people through Samuel, you really don't. (laughs) And they're like, no, 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 we really do. And God's like, no, 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 you really don't. Like, you don't understand. He is not going to be what you think he's going to be. He's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take, and he's never going to give. And they're like, we don't care. We want a king. And to quote Kevin, it's like a conversation a parent has with a child, fine. But don't come crying back to me when it doesn't turn out the way that you think it's going to turn out. This is what they begged for, and now this is what they have. A vindictive, murderous, hot-headed king who is slaughtering village of priests because he hates one guy. That is is crazy. That's the pinnacle of insanity. So Saul and his mighty men, and now Amalek's son, are hiding. They get word that the Philistines raid a town of Kalah. Now, in the midst of all of this, David never lost his love for his people. He never lost his love for his his, uh, nation of Israel, and his heart is broken that his people are getting raided by the Philistines, and he knows that he's close enough that he and his men can go do something about it. So look in chapter 23, verse 2. So he, David, inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? And God says, Yes. And so David goes to his mighty men, he says, hey guys, the people in Kalar are getting raided by the Philistines, we can stop this, let's go. Now they were a little hesitant, right, because they're like, bro, we're in hiding, in case you missed it, we're in hiding, we come out in the open and we, we fight these Philistines and we win, that's going to get back to Saul and now he's going to know where we are. And David's like, I don't care, we need to worry about our people. So they go and they win the battle, they beat the Philistines, they drive them out, and so now he's in Kalal. Of course, Saul hears about it. It's a pretty big deal, right? You hear about this battle that takes place. Well, instead of Saul, A, being grateful for David and for his mighty men of saving the city, 
or B, being grateful that his own countrymen had their lives saved because of what David and his mighty men did. Instead of all of that, he now sees that as an opportunity. Now I know where David is. Let's go get him. That's all he cared about. He was so engulfed with this. That's all he cared about. So he takes his men, and he goes to find David and to capture him in Kalah and to kill him. So David hears about it. He inquires of the Lord, hey, if we stay here, can Kalal be an asylum for us? Will they protect us? Can this become our new place of residency? And the Lord says, no. As soon as Saul gets here, they'll surrender you over to him. So he and his men flee, and they go to the desert. Saul gets there, realizes that he has missed David, and he's like, I don't care. We got him on the ropes. Let's go get him. So David now has 600 men. We don't know where the extra 200 came from. But he now has 600 mighty men with him. King Saul has 3,000. Okay, in case you don't know math, that's a 5 to 1 ratio. <laughs> that's the odds. Statistically, the odds are in favor of King Saul. Now, if you keep reading about how boss David and his mighty men were, that's really good odds for them. <laughs> they slayed much more than that in their battles in the future. But, but so Saul goes after him. And here's what we have in, in chapter 23, verse 14. It says, day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. And that's where we pick up in chapter 24. All of this goes on. You're like, Greg, you lost me about halfway through all of that, okay? There's a lot going on, but what all this does is to build up. You can see the tension. You can see the drama. You can see all of the situation that's happening between David and Saul. And Saul apparently won't stop at anything in order to track David, capture him, and kill him. A whole group of Nob literally lost their lives because Saul hated David. That's crazy to think about. So now, David is presented with an opportunity that the world would say, God has given him into your hand, and David had a different perspective. In chapter 24, Saul went into the desert to pursue David, and David was presented with an opportunity for worldly retribution. Look at chapter 24, verse 3. He came to the sheep's pens along the way, a cave there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. What's happening here, right? David and his men are hiding in these cracks and these crevices of this desert, of this remote area. Saul is with his 3,000 men trying to track David. Well, you know what? He's got a little bit of boo-boo belly this morning. Maybe he, maybe he had gluten issues. I don't know, right? But something's got his tummy upside down, and he's got to go into the cave, and he's got to relieve himself, right? And so he goes in there, and David and his men were far back in the cave. Now, isn't that awkward? Come on, guys. Let's go ahead and get a little real with it. You ever been in the bathroom when you think you're alone and you find out you're not? Yeah, that's kind of awkward, isn't it? So David goes, uh, Saul goes in to relieve himself. David and his men are in the back of the cave. <laughs> and I'm sure they're probably like, oh, no, that's, that's not how we'll, that's, can't unsee that, right? And so the men said, look at verse 4, the men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. So David crept up unnoticed. <laughs> I'm not getting that close to a man who's having a conversation with nature. I'll go ahead and put that out there right now, all right? Creeps up, and it's behind him. Anyway, you got it. You get the picture. All right, so he creeps up behind him, and he cuts off a corner of his robe, right? And then he, like, crawls back in, and so now he's got a corner of his robe. Now, watch this, verse 5. This is very interesting. Afterward, David was conscious-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe, and he said to his men, 
The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, and lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. Saul left the cave and went out his way. Here he had a chance. And guys, to be honest with you, David would have responded in a way that the world would have said was 100% just had he killed Saul. Like, not only is David protecting himself, he's also protecting the kingdom. He would also have protected all the innocent people that Saul is slaughtering and murdering in order to get to David. Most people in the world's eyes would have said, this is a very righteous thing that you would have done. David had already been anointed to be the king of Israel. But David said, no, that's not my place. He's the Lord's anointed. That's not my place. It's God's place to deal with Saul. So he runs out of the cave. Saul is on his horse. He runs out of the cave, and he falls down, and he confesses, and he repents. Can you imagine how much restraint it would have taken for David to do that? I can't. And and to be honest with you, none of us could have done something at that level without the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit working inside of us, right, to, to make us more like Christ. So he goes out. I'm sure Saul had a moment where he was like, oh, snap. You were in there? Uh, and he realized David saved his life. And so Saul doesn't act in the way he wanted to. I think it probably took him back at David's actions. And, and it says that, that Saul didn't, didn't kill him, didn't take him captive. David left, went back to the strongholds with his men. Saul left and went back to the palace. Saul showed what we would say a little bit of remorse, but remorse is different from repentance. Because he didn't change. So, that's where we end that first decision that David had to not kill Saul. Now, as we go into chapter 25, there's what I call a significant transition. It's just one verse. There is a lot that hangs in that one verse. Chapter 25, verse 1, it says, Now Samuel died, and all of Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. Now, if you don't know at this point, Samuel is the quintessential piece that's kind of held Israel together, right? Uh, Kevin mentions about this in the, in the early on chapters, right? You're coming out of Judges where uh, Israel was just a hot mess. I mean, it was like an episode of Jersey Shore on steroids. Everybody doing whatever they wanted to do. Everything was right in their eyes. And, uh, and, and, and Samuel's mom dedicates him to the temple to the Lord, even though Eli, who was the priest at the time, was not a good spiritual leader. His two sons were very wicked. Wicked and worthless are the two adjectives that the Bible uses to describe them. Probably not something you'd put on your resume. And so Samuel is now the godly leader who's helping them bring back and restore. He's the one who anointed Saul. He's the one who uh, anointed David. And it says that he died. This is a quintessential piece of the whole narrative of this thing transitioning over in this timeline. Warren Wiersbe writes about this this one verse. He says, Samuel was the kind of spiritual mentor and counselor that every leader needs because he put the concerns of God ahead of the politics of the hour. To Samuel, pleasing the Lord was far more important than being popular with the people. It broke his heart when Israel asked for a king, but he obeyed the Lord's orders and he anointed Saul. It wasn't long before he was disappointed in Saul, but then the Lord led him to anoint David. And Samuel died knowing that the kingdom would be in good hands. 
Don't pass over that one transitional verse because it's not just a transitional verse in the storyline of David. It's also a transitional moment in the whole life of Israel. So David now goes to the desert of Paran. He's with his mighty men. We have a second time now that David has a chance to make a godly decision in an ungodly situation. He's hanging out in the desert. There's a guy there named Nabal. Now, Nabal translates to fool. Okay, now a little word of advice. When you get married one day and you and your spouse are like, oh, we don't have a son, let's give him a Bible name. You might want to pass on Nabal, okay? I don't know that I'd put that one on the list, right? And uh, you might want to be like, you know, I'm, I'm a little partial to Micah and Caleb myself. Hey. But anyway, so, uh, so yeah, so Nabal means fool, and he was. So David and his men were kind of hanging out on the edge of the balls because they're still in hiding. They're kind of hanging out on his, ter- uh, on his property, and they were kind of guarding and protecting the ball's territory. The, the ball didn't really know that. And so it was shearing season. I'm not sure what season that is, but it was shearing season. And David sent some of his men into Nabal to ask for some supplies. And Nabal was aggressively rude and basically was like, I don't know you. You need to get up out of here and get out my business. Well, they're like, okay, you know. So they go back and tell it to David. And David's like, regulators, mount up. Okay, so they strap on their swords. 400 of the 600 hop on their horses, and they're going to go pay Nabal a visit, and they're going to let him know what's up, right? You know, you just insulted the wrong person. Well, in spite of all that, Nabal actually had a godly wife named Abigail. Abigail hears about this whole situation and goes to Nabal and is like, you're an idiot, okay? You are the embodiment of your name. You're a moron. So she takes all the supplies, and she goes out to meet David as he and his 400 mighty men are coming to give Nabal Apparently what he deserved, some retribution. And she gives him the supplies. She begs for his forgiveness and tells him, I'm sorry, we should not have behaved this way. Would you please have grace and mercy on us? Look in chapter 25, verse 32. David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day, and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. I've heard your words, and I've granted your request. What we see here is David's own confession. See, when when Saul was confronted with his sin, he just kind of had temporary remorse. But when David was confronted with his sin, he has repentance, right? See, in this other time when David wanted to go fight the Philistines, what does it say? It says he sought the Lord. Well, what does he do this time? No, he's just responding in the flesh, right? He got slighted. He got mistreated. Okay, it's time for me to take judgment into my own hands. But when Abigail comes and and, and begs for mercy and and David recognizes how he's responding the wrong way, he's he's convicted and he has repentance and he asks for her forgiveness and thanks her for for coming into his life and showing him where he was wrong. And, And David has this moment where he realizes, I'm not responding the way that the Lord wants me to respond. And and he does something about it. And he goes about his way. Fun little side note, Abigail goes back home. The next day she tells Nabal uh, the scenario. Nabal has a heart attack. Ten days later he dies. So now she's a widow without protection 
with all of these things, David hears about it. David sends word to Abigail and says, hey, you can come be my wife if you would like. I'll help protect you. I'll take care of you and your family. You can be a part of my family. She takes him up on his offer. She traded up. She leveled up big time, right? She went from a a moronic fool to a guy the Bible says uh, was a man after God's own heart. And so David then continued to take care of Nabal's family and his things in the midst of all of this. So the first scene we see is, is David with Saul where he had a chance to kill him. And he chose not to. The second scene is where he had a chance to get some retribution to Nabal to where, again, the world would have said it was justified. He would have gotten what he deserved. And David said, no, that's not how we need to roll. Chapter 6, same song, different album, right? That is David. I mean, Saul having 3,000 men, hearing about where David is, he goes to pursue to kill David. Look in chapter 26, verse 7. Oh, I need to build this up. So they're out there uh, at night. They're camping out. David, David sees where Saul's camp is, and he tells, one of his, he tells two of his leaders, hey, who wants to go with me and sneak into King Saul's tent? You know, that tent's not going to be on the outskirts, okay, right? Like the king's tent is going to be in the middle of all of the army. Who wants to go sneaky, sneaky in the middle of the night and sneak into the king? Give him a wet willy in the middle of the night, right on his pillow. I was here, you know, WZ or something. I don't, you know, that's, that's kind of like a, that's a, that's a suicide mission, right? So one of David's men's like, I got you back, you know. So they go in, they sneak into the tent. Look, in, look at verse 7. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear, I mean, come on, with the spear, right? I'm telling you, it's like this dude's comfort blanket. Guy has it next to his pillow, you know, like, can I go to sleep? Boop, there's my spear. Oh, I'm good, right? I'm surprised he wasn't, like, snuggling with it or something. Anyway, so Saul, the spear was in the ground near his head. Abner, the soldiers, were lying all around him. Abishai said to David, bro, no, I'm just kidding, that's not, that's not my Bible, I'm just adding that in. Today, God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Have we heard that before? Yes, we have, right? David's men were like, dude, this is it. This is your moment. This is your time to shine, right? Let's go. And God has delivered him into your hands. Now, let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. That's probably hard to do, by the way, I would imagine. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless. As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come, and he will die. David realized, like, dude, nothing that this guy is doing is out of the sovereign hand and control of the Lord God. God's going to have his timing where he takes care of Saul. That's not on us. That's not on us. So David takes his spear and his water jug, and he leaves the camp. And he goes far away, and he starts hollering at everybody. Hey, everybody, look what I got. And they wake up, and they hear it, and Saul recognizes the voice. He says, David, is that you? David's like, yep, I got your stuff, you know, to which Saul probably recognized that his stuff right next to his head was gone. And he realized again that David had a chance to kill him, and David didn't. Look in verse 17. Saul recognized David's voice and said, is that your voice, David? Look at my son. (laughs) David, my son. Well, that's kind of rich, isn't it? David replied, yes, it is, my Lord. He added, why is my Lord pursuing his servant? Remember last time when Jonathan inquired of his dad? Like, hey, help me out here. 
what has David done that deserves death? Right? They keep putting it back on Saul. David does it again. He goes, hey, help me understand. Like, what have I done to cause you to want to murder me? What have I done? What wrong am I guilty of? Verse 21, then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you consider my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. And yeah, okay, well, Saul's getting it figured out. No, he's, he's not. And we transition out of this segment at the very end of chapter 26 with this statement. So David went on his way, and Saul returned home. Three times, twice with Saul, once with Nabal, that David could have responded in a way that the world and his friends were encouraging him to say, now's your moment. And David said, no, it's really not. That's not how we need to respond to this person or to this situation. Time and time again, Saul's sin, his jealousy, his rage caused him to go after David in unjust and ungodly ways, and even in Nabal's unjust shunning of David. But in all three of these instances, David could have responded in the way that the world would have accepted and agreed with him on. But this is the key to it all. You guys ready? David desired to respond in a way that was right in the eyes of the Lord, not in a way that was right in the eyes of the world. That's the difference. As followers of Jesus Christ, that's the difference for us. Now, last week, Kevin mentioned that David and Saul give us a picture of Jesus' life while he was here on earth. Think about a few things just in this segment of this morning, right? Think about David's response regardless of Saul's actions against him. Think about Jesus' response regardless of the people's actions against him. Literally praying forgiveness for the people who were crucifying him on a cross. The perfect embodiment of his own teaching in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus literally lived that out when he was being murdered and was praying forgiveness for the people that were killing him. You know, another segment there is Saul recognized David's, un David's godly decisions, right? Saul confessed. He recognized how David responded in a Christ-like manner, and, and he took notice of that. So many times we read through the Gospels when Jesus would respond in a way that gave glory to God, and people took notice. One of those that comes to mind is in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, the group that was the most vocal and the most vigilant to get rid of Jesus and to kill him. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. In John chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who comes from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Nicodemus saw how Jesus was living and teaching and responding, and it made an impact on his life, so much so that, that we believe that as you keep reading through the Gospel of John, Nicodemus ended up giving his life to Christ and becoming a follower of Christ, in spite of being part of a group that was so adamantly opposed to him. And the last thing, David sought to honor the Lord with his responses and let God take care 
of the rest. And when Jesus was in front of Pilate, Pilate was like, your life literally hangs in my hands. What shall I do? And Jesus says, no, it really doesn't. The only power you have is what my father has, has given you. And that's how it is in our lives. When we're being treated unfairly or unjustly or in an ungodly way, the, 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 the move on those people is not on us. That's on the Lord. He's the one who's ultimately sovereign and in control of taking care of that situation. So, in closing, what do we do when we're the recipients of ungodly actions or ungodly situations? You know what? It doesn't always come from ungodly people. Sometimes it may be people that are really close to you, but they're just responding in an ungodly way. They're acting in sin or they're living in sin, and and you're the recipient of that. How do we respond? Well, we don't have control over other people, and we don't have control over what they do. But we do have control over one thing, and that's our response. What is our response to those people or to that situation? Do we respond in the flesh and have the world around us say, good job, they deserve that? Or do we respond in the spirit and have the Lord say, well done? Jesus was honored in that. It's not always easy, but it's what we're called to do. We saw an example of that in David's life, but really it's just a foreshadowing of the ultimate example in Jesus' life when he was here on earth. Let me pray. You got some time around your table groups this morning that you can flesh some of that out and just think through some scenarios in your life, some situations in your life, and how you can help each other. Just like Abigail helped David see that's not the way he needed to respond. We can help each other in the same way. Let's pray.